Hello and welcome to Stories of the Ones That Got Away. My name is Nina and I'm your guest today. In this episode, I'll tell you about a missed opportunity I sometimes wonder about. Stories of the Ones That Got Away is a space for conversations about alternative life paths people sometimes wonder about. I'm your host, Tola Gumbiade, and on this episode, I speak with Nina about a time when the opportunity to live the American dream eluded her. I met Nina a year ago at a lake house work retreat in Nairobi, and since then, she has become a really good friend and thought partner. She's always on the lookout for the next adventure and has spent the last three years living in three different countries. Nina grew up between China and Canada and began her career in management consulting in New York City before pivoting hard to fish farming in Zambia. This episode shares some forcing factors that led to that career pivot. Enjoy listening. What is this story <laughs> you're about to tell us, Nina? What is the one that got away? So for me, the one that got away isn't a specific person, but it's more, I sometimes think about it as a parallel life path that got away. Mm-hmm. Um, two years ago, almost exactly two years ago, I was living in Zambia and had a life already planned for myself in New York. Had a job lined up, had a boyfriend waiting for me back in New York, was meant to return to New York from Zambia after three months away. And in the middle of all this, I found out that my visa for the U.S. had been denied and that I couldn't return to the U.S. And so this entire life that I planned for myself kind of disappeared before my eyes. And I ended up not going back to the U.S., stayed in Zambia, and here I am still on the continent two years later, now living in Nairobi. Okay. And why did you think of this as the story you wanted to tell today? When I reflect on my life, I think that's probably the biggest kind of pivot point in my life. I guess for a bit of context, you know, I grew up in Canada, studied in the U.S., started off my career working in New York for a few years before doing this brief stint in Zambia. But there was almost this kind of like life trajectory that, you know, you could kind of see paid before your eyes. It was going to be private equity for a few years in New York, then going out to grad school, then, you know, getting married, settling down. There's this whole path paved to like a white picket fence. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, this crazy thing happened, like a visa denial kind of turned all that on its head. And that's like a whole parallel life that, you know, I often think about as like the ship that sailed that I never lived. Mm-hmm. I'm incredibly grateful for what I have now, but that's just this kind of, I think to me, that's kind of the big missed opportunity in my life in some ways. Yeah. And this, the visa you applied for, was it with a particular company that you had a job with or was it you independently applying? It was with a particular company. So I had been working in New York for a few years prior to going to Zambia. I was in Zambia just for kind of a volunteer project and was meant to go back. Um, and I had, I'd had that job offer for 18 months before. So it was like a done and set thing. It was almost like you were like, oh, wow. you know, it's almost like when your kids are like betrothed to one another. I was like, <laughs> I knew I was going to that job for a year and a half. It was all set, right? Had a boyfriend of like almost three years. Like things were going steady. And that was like a whole life that was waiting for me. Oh, wow. And then the work permit that the company applied for just got denied. That, and so that was that. My Nigerian self does not understand. You have a Canadian passport, right? Mm-hmm. My mm-hmm. Nigerian self does not understand that you got a visa denied to the U.S. with a Canadian passport. I'm just like, how, how does that even happen? But that's a different yeah. story. <laughs> Trust me, it's as baffling to me as it is to you. This is one of those cases where somebody will say maybe it just wasn't meant to be because it just seems like everything was lined up perfectly. I think you're like when you say it just wasn't meant to be that that feels like it resonates because I think 
when I think about the life that I've had over the past two years, um, you know, working a startup in Zambia, then moving to Nairobi and jumping into a whole new organization here, all the things that I've learned, you know, not just on the job, but personally, like as an individual, the learnings I've had over the past two years, that dwarfs anything I could have had um, if I'd stayed on that path going back to New York. So from where I stand right now, I'm incredibly grateful for kind of that really serendipitous moment. But at the time, I felt like the most terrifying thing is, you know, I was always the kind of person who planned out my life two steps ahead. Who else is crazy enough to line up a job 18 months in advance? I'm going to ask you to fantasize with me for a bit and imagine that that visa wasn't denied. What what do you think your life would have been like right now? I think it would be a lot more boring, actually. I think that, <laughs> um, <laughs> so I would have gone to the private equity job that I um, was trying to go to, which been, you know, in this beautiful building in the middle of Manhattan, overlooking Central Park, um, where you can see like, the entire park cut out from the city. Absolutely stunning view. What part of that? Like, you've never even gone to find and I'm like, what part of that is boring, please? I think I think what's boring about it is the predictability of it. Of it, it almost feels um, it almost feels like you're driving down like a paved road, like a paved highway. You know exactly where the landmarks are, right? You do two years or three years in private equity, then you go to business school at Harvard or Stanford, and then you know, then you go on to become a VP at this firm. You get married, you buy a home somewhere, and then you kind of you're in this hamster wheel, right? And I think. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Some of my closest friends in life are doing that right now and they feel incredibly happy and fulfilled by the work. But I think for me, the fact that I came to Zambia even for three or four months for this kind of consulting project, that was indicative of like this kind of curiosity I always had about working in emerging markets. It was something I'd studied in university. It's something that resonated with me personally because my family and I immigrated from China at a very young age. So there's always this like deep-seated interest in me about emerging markets and driving development, you know, and working in that context. And so to me, you know, the past two years of working in these crazy startups, doing all sorts of things. So I spent my first year in Zambia working on a fish farm, doing strategy and investment and fundraising and all sorts of stuff around raising fish, basically. And this past year working at an education startup in Nairobi. You know, these experiences, I think, I learned so much from them and the experiences feel so much richer in a way that going to the same office building overlooking Central Park in Manhattan, doing that day in and day out, it just wouldn't have had the same same impact on me. But I, I actually caught you short playing by describing, you know, what soccer mom Nina is doing right now, because that's the way I imagine you, you're like this, maybe not yet a mom, but you're working in this <laughs> in this VC firm or this PE firm. You have this beautiful office space overlooking Central Park. What else is happening in this life of yours? So I'm probably working like 80 hours or 100 hours a week. So probably pretty stressed out. You know, I'm probably still dating this boyfriend. And we're probably now in month, I mean, year five of our relationship. We're probably very settled living together. And I'm probably thinking about which business school I want to go to next. Yeah, I think that's Nina in this parallel life. I think that Nina in this parallel life would feel... Would feel like a, conf- a pretty conflicting mix of emotions. I think would feel, on the one hand, you know, really, really proud of how far I'd come, you know, from being like a first-generation immigrant and all that. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I think might also feel a little bit closed in by. I think sometimes when you live that sort of life, you you kind of like trap yourself into a certain kind of life. You know, you feel more and more that you have to continue on that same sort of lifestyle, that same sort of income, etc. Yeah, it's not, honestly, this parallel, this parallel Nina is not living a bad life. <laughs> and we'll come back to that a bit, but I wanted to speak about the relationship you had before. So what happened to that? 
obviously it sounds like you're mm. but I'm curious to know um, how much of an impact this visa rejection had on that. Man, so I guess we were dating for two and a half, almost three years at that point. And when this whole visa thing happened, actually, when it, the news first came out, my boyfriend at the time, actually, so he's American. And of course, we all know about green card marriages. And he actually asked me if I wanted us to get married so I could <laughs> come back to the U.S. and work in this private equity job. And, you know, like he... I think he was more enthusiastic about a potential life that we could have together than I was at the time, because having spent those few months in Zambia, having come up to Nairobi and started to see a little bit of what an alternative life could be, I think I started to have some of these doubts around, okay, well, you know, is this really all my life will be? But the relationship, oh oh man, would we have stayed together if I went back to New York? It's, man, it's really, really hard to say, because I think when you're in the relationship, it's kind of easy to like go along with the momentum of it and feel like things are all right. But I remember after we, like shortly after we broke up and I started kind of exploring, you know, other parts of life, et cetera, I actually began to realize that we were in a lot of ways kind of growing apart from each other. So he were, you know, had a very adventurous spirit, but worked in corporate law, still works in corporate law to this day. And even when we catch up, I think in retrospect, I could tell that we were starting to grow apart even, even during that time. Like even during the time that he was mentioning that, you know, we could get married and all these things. I could start to feel kind of the distance between us, just in like the way that we approach the world. Mm, that's interesting. And why I wanted to dig deeper into that was because she had mentioned when you picture this parallel life, you were probably still five years into this relationship in addition to your central mm. park, your office. And I was wondering <laughs> if I was wondering if the visa rejection played a significant role in the breakup itself as well. I think if I'm being honest with myself, the visa rejection was almost like a convenient trigger, I suppose, yeah. for the relationship. Because if I'd say, like, staying in New York again with that momentum, there's no reason, there's no reason really to break up. You're happy enough. But with the visa rejection and the idea that I wouldn't be back in the U.S. for at least a couple of years, I remember I spent um, I, I spent six days in New York between kind of my two chapters in Zambia. The first chapter was doing the consulting project, and the sec- second chapter is coming back longer term. I remember I spent six days in between that, going back to New York, kind of packing up all my belongings, breaking up with my boyfriend, and doing. And I remember at the end of that whole experience, feeling almost like you know that feeling you have after like a really really good cry, like you feel. It's cathartic, it's emptying, but you also feel somehow relieved and hopeful about things. I think that was how I felt about the breakup as well. I call, I call those kind of situations forcing factors. So it wasn't because you left for Zambia that you didn't have the visa, right? Like even if you hadn't gone to Zambia, the visa might have still gotten rejected and you would have been out of a job having to leave the U.S. and figure out what to do next in your life. Is that what the situation would have been? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So it was just a coincidence that I was in Zambia at the time and talking to companies that were potentially interesting to work with. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it could have happened while I was living in New York, which would have been infinitely more terrifying in yes. retrospect. Because it would have been so uncertain as well. And when you were talking about how your then boyfriend suggested getting married, I'm like, what? You want to be my Nigerian dream and you said no to it? What? <laughs> <laughs> my parents were very disappointed as well. Okay. When you heard the news that your visa was rejected, I know you mentioned that you were devastated, but just walk me through what happened at that time. Well, when did you hear the news? What were you doing? What did you, how were you feeling? What happened immediately after? Take me back to that time. Oh man. So let me think. It was like a really beautiful day in Lusaka. I was just I was hanging out in my backyard or something, like having a really, really chill afternoon. And then got got a phone call from 
this woman who's a vice president of the private equity firms. And, and she called and said, hey, look, I want to give you an update on things. So it was actually an appeal that had been rejected. So if we go all the way back, they had first applied for a visa for me kind of several, many months before that. And the first time I found out that my visa was rejected, it was a day after Christmas, it was December 26, 2017. And I had actually stayed in New York that that Christmas holiday because I was absolutely swamped with work. I was working in management consulting at the time and, you know, told my parents I'd go home for Chinese New Year instead or something like that. So I remember the first time I got my visa rejected was I was sitting at like my dining room table in my tiny New York apartment. You know, I was neurotically checking the U.S. things at USCIS. And the day after Christmas, I remember sitting there just kind of checking it after dinner. And there was this notification saying, you know, we regret to inform you that this was not approved etc 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 i remember sitting there just an absolute horror and shock i've been working a full day it's the day after christmas my boyfriend at the time sat on the table across from me i remember both of us just looking at each other across the table you know just in shock neither of us really had the words for each other so that was the first time and the the private equity firm had appealed the decision um and we were kind of fighting it the entire time and then when you got to i guess this is april or may when i was in lusaka we were expecting good news, like this had almost never happened before. And so when I got the phone call from the VP, at first I picked up the phone being like, oh, great. Like we finally, you know, was expecting good news. And when she told me, like it was a really short phone call and I kind of told her like, great, like let me give, give me some time to think about things. I'll get back to you. Because, you know, there were, she was like, well, you know, we could try some other like alternative, more creative visa applications. I could try this different, you know, different type of work permit. And she was kind of listing off all these different potential solutions. And I remember sitting, yeah, sitting in my backyard on the back stoop just thinking, shit like this you know my options like this really might be the kind of the end of the road here you know the, the other options were just a lot riskier and so I remember like hanging up the phone pretty quickly yeah like walked around my kitchen in shock for a little bit and then I think I pulled out my laptop tried to journal think like tried to like list out all the different life options I had in front of me instead now but just the, the general feeling I associate with that kind of that moment which is a feeling of hollowness and feeling very much um very much like untethered to anything it's like imagine you're standing you know imagine you're standing on this road where you could kind of see the road for like many many miles in front of you and you know where you're going and suddenly having that road kind of like chopped in front of you and realizing you know i don't know where the path leads now yeah yeah and i imagine that would be hard especially when you talked about how you usually plan things two years in advance what made you go to zambia yeah zambia was entirely serendipitous so um i think i mentioned when I was in university, I'd studied economic development. That was always kind of my field of interest. And I knew that I wanted to explore international development kind of at some point. So I went to Zambia originally when I was on my secondment from, from Bain & Company, where I was working at the time. But I'd always studied economic development in the East Asian context and wrote my dissertation on that. And, you know, from a personal perspective, that's where my family's from. But then this opportunity opened up in Zambia when I was looking at different kind of secondment options. And it was just a really unique project um, that was a collaboration between the Gates Foundation and the Chinese government itself, which was a pretty unprecedented collaboration at that point. And they needed someone who, you know, knew the context of economic development, knew, um, you know, to kind of engage with Chinese stakeholders effectively. And so I, I applied for this role um, on this project, not really expecting too much out of it. I remember, I remember actually kind of, the day before my flight to Zambia, I feel like a huge sense of dread thinking to myself, man, like you've studied East Asian economic development. You're, you know, for most of your adult life, it's what you've always said you're interested in. And here you are going to a project, you know, in Zambia, like 
you know, are you just going off to Africa for an adventure for a few months? Like, you know, what's the narrative here? Like, why are you doing all this? And feeling so full of doubt when I first went there. But once I got there, everything changed completely. And really, really grateful for kind of how serendipitous all of that was. Yeah, I'm, I'm really happy for that. And when you think back to that time, what comes to mind? How do you feel about it now? Right now, when I look back on things, I think the word that comes to mind most is just feeling very, very grateful. It, like, it wasn't at all an intuitive kind of pivot in my life, but I think that the past two years, I've grown a lot more as a person than I ever have before, and it's really shaped me. I think people talk about you don't discover who you are. like You make decisions that shape you into the person that you are. I think that's been really, really true for me. Yeah, I'm grateful for the fact that over the past few years, you know, I've gotten to explore the field of development. It's always been interesting to me, but also I think more so than that, the past two years have been you know, the most challenging of my life. I've had to dive into situations where I genuinely didn't know what to do. And I learned things like a growth mindset, which previously, you know, was completely foreign to me. And obviously, you know, got to meet the most incredible people in the world like you. Yeah. And like my life now, I think is so much more vibrant than it could have been. So yeah, gratefulness is probably the biggest one. Looking back at that experience though, what are some lessons that you'll say taught you? Ooh. The, so the biggest lesson I, I think I learned was um, learning how to trust myself. Oftentimes when we make decisions, and I still do this now, we look for a ton of external validation for the right decision to make, right? Like often now when I have multiple options for my next, you know, my next step, I'll kind of shop those ideas around to all the people that I respect and look for them to kind of give me ideas on, you know, get consensus from people I respect on what the best path would be. And back then when I was doing that, no one in my kind of personal board of advisors really was saying, yeah, 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 definitely, definitely move to Zambia for the foreseeable future and work on a fish farm. That's definitely the right path, you know, the right next step for the path that you're on. But after taking, after taking on the job of the startup in Zambia, you know, for the first two or three months, like every night when I drove home from the office at like 11 PM or midnight, like wondering to myself, like, was this really the right decision? In that period of my life, I think, full of self-doubt like in the moment wasn't a very happy time but one of my best friends told me this phrase that's kind of stuck with me since and she said the decision that you made is the right one because you made it and I remember kind of repeating that mantra to myself and I think that more and more like I've come to I've come to really believe in that you know sometimes when you're at a crossroads there isn't like an obvious right choice and back to that point around you know you shape yourself through your decisions. You know, you make a decision and then you just stick with it and you have to trust, like you just have to have this internal conviction that this is the right one. This is the decision that's going to make you grow and, you know, help you become the person that you hope to become. But yeah, like that, that, that was hard when you, I was only 25. Yeah, I, I can imagine. But I, I really love the point that you're saying about trusting yourself because it even goes both ways. One, trusting yourself to make the right decision, whatever that is but also trusting that regardless of what decision you make, you've got this, like you're able to mm. put in your best and do what's right or what would be valuable to you. So it's one thing to be at that crossroad, but it's also trusting yourself to get you through whatever the outcome of that decision ends up being. That's such a good point. Yeah, like trusting yourself to walk that path down. Mm-hmm. We tell ourselves kind of stories and narratives about who we are. And so when you look back on decisions you've made retrospectively, like, I don't know, it's all about the mindset and the kind of the narrative that you shape around it, right? For what, you know, what determines the right decision versus not. And looking back at that time, is there anything you'll do different? There's nothing huge that I would do differently. I think knowing what I know now, one thing I would have, one thing I would have changed slightly, I think I would have perhaps asked for help more. 
I think it takes a lot of courage and a lot of vulnerability to reach out to people and ask for help. And if I was going through that same kind of period now, you know, I think I'd reach out to a lot more people for help. Whereas back then I was, you know, I was kind of convinced that I had to like walk on this path on my own and be strong and figure things out on my own. But now I'm like, no, you know, you don't, you don't have to do that all on your own. I like that. And I even alluded to taking that now in the decisions you make. So you have this board of advisors or how did you frame it? Who now you put you mm-hmm. your ideas through them. And it's, it's a lesson that you've learned, whether consciously or subconsciously from that time that you now incorporate in your daily life. That's, that's solid. Are there yeah. any other things about this experience you want to talk about in general or just want to speak on before I wrap up with my last question? Uh, no, nothing really comes to mind. Go ahead. Okay. When you think about that time in your life, is there any song or quote or movie that you actually see it with it or something that just represents that time? Ooh. Actually, the one song I discovered around that time, which I listened to on repeat um, during that whole episode, was Melanin by Sotisol. That song is like such a popular one. I think it was one of the f- songs I discovered when I first moved to Zambia. And it just like really stuck with me throughout that entire year, I think, between, you know, moving out of New York, coming back and kind of living through those months of uncertainty. That's one song like whenever I hear that now, it just like takes me back to that time. That's interesting. Sotisol is a Kenyan band, no? Yes. <laughs> foreshadowing for your, your trip to Kenya and what is now your life. Is that what it was? Very possibly. So actually, <laughs> ironically, the reason why I decided to go back to Zambia was because it was like inspired by a trip that I'd taken to Kenya, kind of in the middle um, of my first chapter in Zambia. When I first came to Kenya and was just, you know, spoke to a few startups here. And I was just so, so like blown away by the ecosystem here that I knew I wanted to come back to um sub-Saharan Africa in some shape or form and at the time the best opportunity was in Zambia but yes there was always the game plan was always end up in Kenya (laughs) so you're right it probably was foreshadowing (laughs) and I remember when we were talking earlier even though that was supposed to be my last question I just remembered that I thought Mm -hmm. it was really great to have an organization believing you so much that they were willing to do everything to keep you in New York working in their company did, that, did you ever think about it that way uh, when all of this was happening? Yeah, I, I did feel really, really lucky for, I mean, the amount of time and the amount of money they, they poured into it. Mm-hmm. I think that when I finally told them that I wasn't going to be able to, you know, try any of these kind of creative visa options that they were putting in front of me, it actually felt not that dissimilar from the breakup in some ways where it was a bit of a forcing function, you know, I'd always been really, really interested in the learning opportunities I would get from private equity, but I'd never been, you know, growing up, I was never like, oh man, like, I love private equity. That's really where I want to end up. And I'd always had these kind of like very small niggling doubts around, is this really the life that I want? And so I was really, really grateful for that organization, but the, the actual kind of like the breakup with them as a result of the visa was a little bit awkward, actually. <laughs> When I told them that I didn't want to try any of these other options, they were like, oh, okay, all right. So, you know, you're not really willing to give it your all to come back to the U.S., whereas they kind of were. I've always thought that relationships and work, career paths, have very similar underlying principles for some reason, because that just felt like a big <laughs> Also because I'm privy to, I know you personally, and I'm privy to some things in your life, I'm, I'm interested to see how you project the next couple of years. So where I'm going with this is mostly when you were talking about how you paint a picture of 
Nina, if she had stayed in New York, you had said how, you know, you worked in this tea firm, you had this office overlooking Central Park. As you can tell, I'm stuck on that office in Central Park. I love the image. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, you had a relationship <laughs> for like five years. You probably go get an MBA in Harvard or somewhere again, and then your career, something else happens in there. I know that you have gotten into both Harvard and Stanford for MBAs. Do you think that going back to school to get this MBA would put you back on that track again? Is that a track you're willing to explore? Or how do you see this playing out for you? I think that going back to the U.S. for graduate school, um, it opens up that life again. Like, and it, it, it opens up the option of that life again. And, you know, that life is really, it's really shiny and really sparkly and really attractive, right? Whether it's the, you know, the office overlooking Central Park or living in the Bay Area, I think there's a lot about that life that does feel really, really attractive. And actually, for the past few months, there's, I have been wondering, like, you know, am I going to kind of end up back on the hamster wheel that I, you know, feel so fortunate to have gotten out of? I think where I'm at right now, and <laughs> I mean, we've seen how good I am at predicting the future, given past um, experiences, but I think where I'm at now is having spent the past few years, you know, working in these organizations that I care so much about. I think having been exposed to this, I'm I feel a pretty strong conviction now that, you know, even on the other end of grad school, I'll want to, you know, either come back to the continent or work in some, you know, in emerging markets in some context to build businesses that create employment and drive economic growth. Yeah, I think now more than ever, I feel pretty certain that that's the path I want to be on for the foreseeable future. As for how I do that, you know, whether it's by being an entrepreneur, helping else, someone else build their business or being an investor, like all of that is still up in the air. Yeah, maybe it's back to the whole point about trusting yourself. Like, I think I trust my future self, like two and a half years from now, to make decisions that I'd be proud of um, and to make them for the right reasons. Is there any particular way you want to end this conversation? I think just by saying thank you. I've never done a podcast before, and I couldn't be more excited to see where all this goes. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for listening. You can find mentioned resources and links in show notes. If you have feedback, want to be a guest someday, or just want to say hello, please email sototga at gmail.com or mention us on Twitter at sototga. Stories of the Ones That Got Away is created and edited by me. The dope music you hear throughout the show is Assassin by Kede Shakedown. Bye!